That brings us to the next section, the deliverance and formation of Israel. Exodus picks up 400 years. They're there total. Now, they're not slaves for the entire 400 years. Most likely, they're only slaves for about the second half. Now, that's still 200 years, which is still a long time, about a little less than the time that America has been around. But they're there for 400 years, living outside the land. And eventually, Pharaoh enslaves them. Now, Pharaoh is this ultimate image of evil. So you've got two images of evil in the Bible now from humanity. You've got the images of chaos from nature, the serpent, darkness, and the raging sea. But now you have these images of chaos and evil in humanity, and that is the city-slash-nation, Babylon, and now the king-emperor-pharaoh-like idea. And so Pharaoh hates these people. He fears their blessings. God is blessing them that they're becoming fruitful and multiplying. He says, I don't like that. I'm going to try to kill them and, and destroy the blessings of God. And so not only can he not see the life that God is giving them and the blessings and, and celebrate that, he sees it and he wants to destroy the life and the blessings that God is creating. And then when God continues to bless and despite his plans to kill them, he decides that he is going to slay them, kill them, do whatever he can. And out of this, one day, Yahweh appeared before Moses. Or sorry, but yet God, once again, all these baby boys are being thrown into the waters, the chaos. And they're going to be thrown into the chaos, and the chaos is going to kill them and destroy their lives. And yet, in the midst of that, God reaches in and pulls one of these baby boys out and saves them. Now, he does this through the fact that the mother actually obeys Pharaoh and throws her baby boy into the Nile. Except Pharaoh never said anything about a basket covered in pitch and tar to save the baby boy. So he's thrown into the chaos. And the word for the basket is the same word that is used of Noah's Ark. Once again, then God uses of all people Pharaoh's daughter to pull Moses out of the chaos and the destruction and redeem. And what this is showing you is that big bad Pharaoh, who is more autonomous than anybody has ever been in human history... And he is the most powerful person. And even will later say, Yahweh, I do not recognize Yahweh's authority. Yet God is using his own daughter to work out his plan of redemption. Pharaoh thinks he's all that and all powerful and all in control. And yet without even knowing it, he is being used by God to fulfill his plan of redemption. And so God uses Pharaoh's daughter to save Moses. And so Moses ends up growing up in Egypt, getting the education of Egypt so that he can start his own nation one day, Israel, yet still being raised by his own biological mother to learn who Yahweh is. Moses ends up murdering an Egyptian, and he runs for his life under the death penalty. Here's the irony. Moses is a murderer, and the law says that he's supposed to die. And Moses will end up giving the law one day. Can you imagine when you got to that part, thou shalt not murder, and the penalty for murder is death, and he's like, oh... I don't know if I want to preach that one to the people. I'm kind of guilty of that. So so Moses is out in the wilderness. He is 80 years old. He spent 40 years growing up in Egypt. He goes out into Midian Desert and grows up, or not grows up, he's already growing up. He spends the next 40 years of his life married to a woman by the name of Zipporah. And he's a shepherd. He's 80 years old. And one day Yahweh appeared before Moses through a burning bush. Now this burning bush is later called the Shekinah glory of Yahweh. Shekinah is the Hebrew word for dwelling. 
So it's literally the dwelling glory of Yahweh. This is how God is going to dwell with his people. This is going to be important because first it starts off in this bush. Why a bush? Bushes are symbols of life. But this bush is dead. Yet what God is doing is resurrecting it, so to speak. By putting fire on it, he's giving it life because he's going to, it's the life of the fire, it's the light of God, it's the voice of God, it's the presence of God. And so this little fire starts off small in this bush, but later it will appear before Israel as this giant pillar tornado whirlwind of fire that will lead them out. And it will stay with them from 1446 BC all the way down to 586 BC, counting downwards in that time. And so God appears to them. Fire represents several things. First, fire is both used to cleanse and judge. You can use fire to cleanse and purify something like woods and forest and weeds or gold and silver or cutting utensils. Fire can cleanse, but it also judges. It's what you use to execute people and pronounce the death penalty on them. And so fire is both a cleansing image and a judgment image. And so when God chooses fire to represent himself, he's portraying himself as a God that both judges the scepter and cleanses the ruler's staff, the shepherd's crook. And that's what fire represents. But fire is also mysterious. We actually have no idea what fire and light are. In all of our science and all of our things, we still really have no idea what, science, what fire and light is. You go talk to any quantum physicist or any scientist, and they'll tell you, we do not know what fire is. We do not know what light is. And I think that's so interesting that God has chosen light and fire to represent himself. And yet it's the, one, the two things in all of nature that we still have no idea what it is, how to classify it, how it even works. We don't even know where light really comes from, but that's a whole quantum physics discussion. And so God uses this fire in a mysterious, life-giving, yet also destructive kind of a thing. But it also represents the Abrahamic covenant. Because when God cut the Abrahamic covenant, they represent the Abrahamic covenant with a torch that was smoking and a torch that was on fire. And these two things represented the people and God coming together. And then God is going to appear before Israel in the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And so these two things will remind them of the covenantal God, the God that makes covenants with people, the God is relational with people. None of the pagan gods ever want a relationship with humans. None of the pagan gods ever make covenants with humans. And yet God in the Abrahamic covenant with the fire and the smoke says, I will make a covenant with humans and I will have a relationship with you. And now God presents himself as this fire, judgment, justice, and cleansing, social justice, and love and provision and care and life, but also mysterious that you cannot define God, yet also the promises of a relational covenantal God of the Abrahamic covenant. And God uses this image to portray who he is in this sense. Remember that one of the things that makes God absolutely unique to, compared to all the other gods is that he's both sovereign and loving at the same time. And the fire portrays that. And it's at this moment that he gives his name Yahweh. And he says, I am that I am. Now in the Hebrew, this is the word Yah, to be. It's the to be. 
We often think that it's I am that I am. But what's interesting is when you read this in the Hebrew, the word Yah or Yahweh can be broken down. Remember to be as a verb. So you can be to be or you can you, or you can be um, I am or I was or I will be or I am being. These are all breakdowns of the word to be. And so they can be used that way. So when God says, I am that I am, he also goes and says, you're to go to Egypt and say he is. Because Moses isn't allowed to say, I am. Moses is going to say, he is, has sent me. And then God will also say, I will be. And I was. He doesn't just use it in the I am. He uses it in all forms of the to be verb. And so by communicating Yahweh, what he's saying by using in all different forms, past tense, present tense, and future tense, he's saying that I am eternal. I'm not just I am. I am the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between. I am the beginning and the end. I am, was and is and is to come. I am all present, all eternal. That's what the word I am is communicating. But at the same time, every single time, that, that communicates sovereignty. By saying, I am, he's also saying, I am all that really, really, really is. Yes, there's other angels and other sons of God out there, but I am all that there really, truly is. I was there before everything else, and I will be there after everything else. I am sovereign. So not only does it communicate his internality, but it communicates his sovereignty, his absolute sovereignty over the world. But not only that, every single time he comes to Moses, he says, I want you to go to them. And Moses is like, who am I? And God says, I will be with you. That's all that matters. Well, what if they don't believe me? Tell them that I am sent you as proof that I am with you. Well, what if they want a sign? Here are signs, the leprous arm and the staff and the, the water and the blood to prove that I am with you. Well, I'm not a good speaker. Don't worry. I will speak through you because I am with you. Every single time God says I am to Moses in this context, he keeps saying, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. And so the other thing this word Yahweh communicates is the God who is with you. That God is with you. This word communicates the idea that I am the eternal and sovereign God who is always with you. Notice the sovereignty and the relationship. And so not only does the fire communicate the eternality and the power and the, the justice and the sovereignty and the love of God and the relationship with God, but so does his own name. And there is no other being in all the world that has the name Yahweh. Lots of beings are called God. Lots of beings are called Most High. Lots of people are called Jesus, or Joshua is the Hebrew version of Jesus. Jesus is a version of Jesus. Lots of people are called these names. But no being in all of the universe has ever been called Yahweh. Because no being can be Yahweh. No being is sovereign and relational at the same time. No being is eternal and yet relational and loving and pursues you no matter what at the same time. If Satan ever creates a counterfeit Yahweh, it will just end up being Yahweh. And he doesn't want you to know Yahweh. He wants to take you away from Yahweh. And so Yahweh is the unique name of God. And in your Bibles, it's always portrayed as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see all capital L-O-R-D, that is the name Yahweh in the Hebrew. And so he gives his name and says, this is the God that I am. This is the God that you're going to tell Egypt about and my people about. And this is the God that's going to deliver you and redeem you. 
I am the eternal and sovereign God who is always with you. God sends Moses in to Egypt. Now Moses didn't want to go. Finally, at the very end, he says, I'm not going. And God says, oh yeah, you're going to go whether you like it or not. And in the end, you will thank me. But because of the way that you're going about it, you don't get to speak to Pharaoh and you don't get to do the plagues. Your brother Aaron's going to do it instead. So God sends them in Egypt. In the very beginning, Moses doesn't speak to Pharaoh. He doesn't do the plagues. He just holds his staff and stands next to his brother. But halfway through, all of a sudden, Moses begins to speak. And Moses begins to do the plagues. And then by the end, when he's leading them out of Egypt, he's standing before the water of the Red Sea. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. God just brought us to a dead end. And Moses says, behold, your God and what he will do. Moses began to see what God was doing through the plagues. And he began to believe. And God redeemed him from his judgment. God judged him and said, you don't get to do this. But then when Moses began to believe, God redeemed him, restored him, and he becomes the great Moses that we know him as today. But he didn't start off that way. He started as a man who was worshiping pagan gods. He didn't believe in God. When God came, he says, who are you and where have you been? You haven't done anything for us, and you've left me in the desert. And oh no, I'm not going to go do it and do what you want. And then he turns into the greatest prophet the world has ever seen, according to the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Through ten devastating plagues, God shows that he's superior to the Egyptian gods. Each plague attacks a god, the god of life, the death of the firstborn, which is a punishment for them killing the firstborn of all the Jews or the Israelites. And the, the, he attacks um, Ra, the most supreme god of the sun and light, by bringing darkness. He attacks the earth god, Geb, who is one of the most supreme gods, by turning the dust into gnats and attacking the people. And he goes after each of the major gods of Egypt and attacks the very thing that that god's supposed to be a god over. And what he's showing is that I'm much stronger and much more powerful than any of your gods. And yet Pharaoh can't stop any of this. So he's showing that I'm much more powerful than any of your governments and institutions. But at the same time, anybody who shows their faith in God is spared from these judgments. They escape all the judgments and ultimately the death of the firstborn through the Passover lamb. So God is also showing you that despite the fact that you deserve to die, I'm willing to forgive and redeem if you repent and you come to me. And so through these plagues, he demonstrates this. The final plague is the death of the firstborn. And what God is doing is he's saying, you took the life of the firstborn males of all these Israelites. I'm going to pay it back to you. You all deserve your firstborn sons to die because you killed the firstborn sons of Egypt or the Israelites. Yeah, maybe you weren't the ones who pulled the sword out and threw them in the Nile, but you're the ones who benefited from their deaths through their slavery and all that kind of stuff. You're all guilty, whether directly or through indirectly participation. And so you all deserve to die and lose your firstborn son. However, in my mercy and grace, I will give you a chance to get out of it. If you take an animal and kill it instead of your son, that this animal will die for your sins instead of you and your family, your son, dying for your sins. And you take the blood and put it on the doorposts. I will pass over in my wrath and I will bring you out of Egypt. Put your faith in me, and you'll escape the judgment of God, and you'll escape the 
government institution of the disinherited world, and you will become a part of Israel, and I will redeem you. I will redeem you. All you have to do to experience this is sacrifice the lamb, believing that it's what God wants you to do, and leave Egypt. If you do that, you will become an Israelite. And so this is the Passover lamb. It's the blood of a lamb that's dying for our sins and our place. The next morning, the Shekinah glory of Yahweh led Israel in their exodus out of Egypt. And all those, all those, both Egyptian and Israelite, who put their faith in God and sacrificed the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts, all their firstborn sons, the symbol of their inheritance, their strength, their power, and their reminder of their sin against Israel. They all were spared the death of the firstborn son, and then they left. And we're told in the book of Exodus that both Egyptians and Israelites left together in faith. And God calls them all Israel. And this is one of the first cases where we begin to really see that Israel has nothing to do with biological descendants of Abraham has everything to do with faith. Yes, the biological descendants of Abraham are the people that God has chosen to work out his plan of redemption. Yet, it is not the biological descendants of Abraham that are the only ones who are considered Israel and the only ones who can be saved. Anyone who puts their faith in God and leaves their old nation and joins this one is an Israelite. This is why John, the Baptist said to the Pharisees, you think that you're saved and you're going to escape the judgment because you're descendants of Abraham? God can make descendants out of Abraham out of these rocks. Meaning it's not biology. It's not ethnicity. It's faith. It's the active work of God and his redemption. That's what gets, makes you an Israelite. And so all of Israel, both Egyptian and Israel, Jews, leave Egypt by faith. And the Shekinah glory of God leads them out. Once again, they come to the chaotic waters of the Red Sea. And once again, they are between the chaos of the government king, the human chaos, and the chaos of nature and creation, the raging sea. And they are trapped between these two chaoses. And it would seem like God has failed them. In fact, the people begin to think that God has failed them. And brought, they even say, he has only saved us to kill us. You know what that's called? That's a psychopath. So they're accusing God of being a psychopath. And so Moses stands up with this staff. The very staff that God says, Judah, the staff will stay with you until it comes to the one it belongs. The staff that Israel had to, Jacob had to lean on and trust in as a reminder of him trusting God rather than himself. And now the God says, this is the staff of God, and it is through this staff that I will work my wonders. And Moses uses the staff to bring the plagues, judgment, and now he's using the staff to bring the parting of the Red Sea, deliverance, protecting people from the injustice of Egypt. And so the Red Sea parts, and the wind of God, the Ruach, the Spirit of God comes into the raging sea and orders it and structures it and separates it like night and day and allows a path of salvation. 
Israel begins to go through as the Shekinah glory of God leads them through. And this becomes their baptism. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when they went through the Red Sea, that was their baptism. So now they've experienced the death of the sacrificial lamb to pay for their sins, and now they're being baptized through the power of the Holy Spirit that is both leading them through the water, the Shekinah glory of God, and the Holy Spirit that's separating the waters. And this becomes their baptism into a new life. And as they come out on the other side, the waters of chaos will collapse on Egypt, just like they did on all the people during the flood. And in that sense, the water baptisms cleanse them of their life of sin and slavery and cuts them off from that life into a new life of the promised land. Just like our baptism washes you of all your sins of your old life and brings you into a new life in God. And so this becomes their baptism. Yet, despite Yahweh's amazing act of deliverance, the people begin to complain. After seeing 11 months, over an 11-month period, God brought 10 plagues. At the end of the 11 months, he made a giant pillar tornado of fire and smoke appear for them and lead them out of Egypt. He saved them from the wrath of God that would kill their firstborn son. He parted the Red Sea right before their eyes. He defeated in the collapsing of the sea the most powerful military army the world had ever seen up to this point, bringing down the Pharaoh who believed that he was God himself, a God himself. And he does this, and the first time they come to water that they cannot drink, they immediately complain. But this is what we do too. God does amazing things in our life. And the next problem that comes to us, we're like, oh my gosh, my life is horrible. What am I going to do? And they begin to complain. But it escalates because God provides for them. In his mercy and his faith and grace, he provides for them even though they're not faithful. So then they come to the next place. And this time, they don't have any food. And this time it escalates because now they're no longer just complaining now they're accusing God of trying to kill them. You just brought us out here to kill us. And they begin to make accusations against God's character. It starts with just grumbling, complaining, this sucks. I can't believe we have to go through this. This isn't going to work out. And then it becomes like, oh, it's all their fault. It, it, they're, they're the horrible people who are doing this. My boss, my father, my mother, my brother, my coworker, whatever. You begin to accuse and you begin to assassinate character as you begin to complain. And then he provides for them quail and bread miraculously, even though they don't deserve it. So then he tests them again. And he says, if you believe I can control the water and purify the water, now I'm going to bring you a place with no water. And they complain again. But this time they don't just complain. They don't just make accusations against God and his character. This time they try to kill God. This time they go up to Moses and they start quarreling with them. Quarreling means the idea of grabbing you by the throat, so to speak, to throw you down the ground to kill you. See, they can't kill God. So what they'll do is they'll kill God's image, his representative. And despite the salvation that God gave them and the seeing the works of God, they're willing to move from complaining to accusation to now let's destroy them. Now I'm going to remove you. Not only do I think you're a horrible person, now I'm going to go after you and actually try to destroy your reputation, your life, your character, whatever it is, get rid of you. And this is what they begin to do with God, and it escalates. And it shows you that even the most redeemed people who have experienced the greatest miracles of God the world has ever seen up to this point, it doesn't take but three weeks for them to spiral down 
and to all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet despite that, God continually shows his faithfulness to them to honor his covenant relational promises, and he keeps providing for them and providing for them. And ultimately he tells Moses to go to the rock, not a little teeny rock pebble, but a giant mountain rock. And Moses take his staff and strike it, and water, a river of water and life begins to gush and pour out, and the river flows through the entire camp. And God then comes to them and gives them a new title for himself. I am the rock. I am the rock that not only will hide, you can hide in and be protected from the enemy, but I am the rock that provides you water. And all throughout the Bible, God will be called the rock. Even though you are shifty as the sand, and you are as easily moved as a raging sea, and your emotions, your faith, your righteousness, your commitment. I am the solid, unmovable, foundational rock that brings you protection and life. I will be faithful to you even when you're not faithful to me because I am the covenantal relational God who keeps my promises no matter what. And I am sovereign and powerful enough to do that. And the other thing that makes God so unique is that he pursues us no matter what, even when we're shaking our fists at him. And then he will accept you by faith and not by works. And this is what God constantly keeps showing you. And so we keep seeing over and over again what humans truly are in our nature in contrast to who God really truly is. And yet how God is so this amazing God of love and power and relational covenantal faithfulness that he's willing to step into the darkness and the chaos and the sin of our life in history and redeem us and use us to redeem other people despite who we really are. But all we have to do is have faith. And this is the image, the story, the narrative that God keeps telling over and over and over again as we go through this book. 